Zero hours. Catherine Mather. Ow! Zero hours. Hello and welcome to Zero Hours Podcast with me, Catherine Mather, where I talk to comedians about the best and worst jobs that they've had to do to get by. Today I'm joined by comedian Marilyn Rock. Hello. Hello. You alright? Yes, I'm well actually no. See that's I've said the polite yes I'm alright. I'm not alright. I have a bad cold. So my, oh, my voice might sound a bit weird. Yeah, but that's okay, we're accepting here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. uh but people might go, That doesn't sound like Merrill. That sounds like Merrill with a bad cold. So there we go. But I felt weird I saying I was all right when I feel like I've been punched in the face repeatedly. Oh no. I managed to get my uh look alike, Merrill. <laughs> And how are you, Catherine? I'm well. I uh, didn't realise we would be recording these podcasts at distance for as long as we have been. Are you um, dealing with the new because, technology of that? Uh, it's actually much easier, isn't ah, it? Ah, okay. To, you don't have to travel now, do you? Thing is, I like the travel because if I'd travelled, I would have remembered to get a cup of coffee and put some deodorant on <laughs> And look vaguely normal and prepare slightly more than coming in from the shops and literally walking up here and switching my laptop on. So I miss I miss the travel preparation. Yeah. Feeling like you're going to work. Yes. Yeah. I I did my live. I did my one woman show live on Zoom. And it's weird that it's actually harder to prepare for a show at home than it is in a club because... In a club, I would get there 40 minutes before and I would sit there doing my makeup really slowly and thinking about the gig whilst the audience came in. And it's everybody else's job to sort out the sound and the lighting and the audience and when we start and the drinks. And and suddenly everything was my job and I was still sitting in my bedroom half dressed like 20 minutes before we were going on because I was at home. So, yeah, Yeah. it's it's actually... I felt that when I was doing, I've only done a couple of like online ones, but I felt, I usually get a little bit nervous, just like nice nerves. It's good before to be nervous. A gig. Yeah, like I always get worried if I'm not a bit mm-hmm, nervous because mm-hmm. then I do badly. Yes. Um, but like I was, I just felt absolutely fine. Like I wasn't going to be doing anything. And then like two minutes before <laughs> I got like the hours worth of nerves just in two minutes. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like absolutely shitting myself <laughs> uh, but it's quite hard as well because you can't hear any feedback well I did it on zoom on purpose so we could hear feedback but what nobody warned me about is that if you leave everybody's microphone open on zoom you get a huge delay um I think the right. zoom technology checks everybody's mic <laughs> one at a time so I did this thing where I asked everybody to hold their hands up when I said a particular word and it was like a 30 second delay. And luckily, wow. my director was there teching for me because um, the biggest problem I find with solo shows is being on, being on your own the whole hour with nobody else going, that was rubbish. <laughs> so he was there and he said, we're going to have to switch everybody's mics off. And I was like, no, please don't take my laughter away from me. But he was quite clever. Apparently what he then did, um, he watched everybody's faces. So what my director then did was he watched everybody's faces to see who was laughing at the right time and would unmute them for that moment. So he literally conducted my laughs. It was amazing. Couldn't have done it without him. That's fantastic. Mm. Identify the biggest laughers. Yeah, yeah. 
And then I was having to scroll through faces to find the most comfortable faces because I had three faces to look at. So because, uh, you know, some yeah. people just go about their daily business <laughs> and you're trying to perform yeah, and you can see weird. somebody making a cup of coffee. Yeah, or like so it's heartbreaking when you just see someone get up and walk away. Walk off, yes. Oh. Or fall asleep. Or when you realise <laughs> yeah. that somebody's taken you to bed with them. That's quite odd. As well. Like you see them all tucked up and you see them really close to the camera. And you go, You've taken me to bed. <laughs> I don't want you in bed while but, you're watching me. <laughs> I, I suppose that would be uh, interesting to try and replicate in real life. Mm. Just everyone bring duvets. Yeah. Well, there's um. We used to go to the cereal cafe, which I know you're not supposed to because it's meant to be for wankers, but it's always been fine when we've been there. Um, and uh, they give free breakfast to local children. But anyway, um, they have they have beds there, so you can eat your cereal in bed. Oh wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's open to misuse, isn't it? It is, but you are in the middle of a cafe. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, we should probably get on to yes. you know what the people paid for. Uh, well, you, no one's paying for this if you don't tell uh, me what to do Catherine I will literally just chat which you may have noticed this is why I'm I need so to hire directors this. as well well you need to direct me it's your podcast I'm a, I'm not a, a chassis Cathy I am the chassis Cathy um, but yeah I mean uh, what what's your worst job um been? well I put three down um and, and I realised, I think the worst job was when I used to work in a nursery. Well, a few nurseries, really. But that was always my... Um, I think most people, when they're starting in comedy and they're not getting paid very much or anything, you have a particular side job you do. So that was my long-term side job. Um, and uh, the particular nurse... Well, the first nursery work I ever did was... See, you're way too young to have been through this. And I think maybe it was only in London as well. So I was at school in the mid-80s. And uh, the teachers went on strike very regularly. And my teachers went on strike so much that I actually got a part-time job. Um, Wow. (laughs) So what I would do when I was 14, 15, turn up to school, there'd be a letter on the door saying the teachers aren't here today. And I would then go to this nursery nearby that I'd got an arrangement with um, and sit there. And uh, and that was my only qualification. I I never did any kind of B-Tech or whatever you do. Um, so the main nursery I worked at, I went for an interview and they kind of just liked me and thought I was sensible. They never followed up on any of my references. They never did a police check on me. Um, I was there every Tuesday um, and my main job on Tuesdays was to take the children swimming. So within about two weeks of being in this place without any qualifications or a police check, or any referees, I was given sole charge of 10 three-year-olds who I had to change into their swimming costumes and put into a swimming pool and get back home safely. Um, And the thing is, that might not sound bad in itself, but I think that's quite a good indication of what the management at this nursery was like. Yeah, I mean, that that does sound like a hard job. Yeah. I mean, getting one ready is hard it was and it wasn't even just the hardness of it of of, it was me I literally had no idea how to do it I had no resources so I didn't know how to keep 10 three-year-olds together in a line walking from a minibus to a swimming pool and I didn't know if they could change themselves if I had to change them um eventually they gave me an assistant and the assistant used to treat me like I was a fucking idiot 
but she was right to. She really hated me because she thought I was so stupid. But what she didn't realise was I agreed with her. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. Um, And I mean, I was actually quite proud of myself because I eventually worked out things like I would take big hula hoops with me and I would put the children inside the hula hoops so that they would all then be contained when we were walking from the bus to the swimming pool. But that also, sounds adorable. Yeah, but but it's a big indication that the management didn't give a monkeys about any of the kids or any of the staff. So the conditions were crappy. The staff were crappy. Um, you know, sorry, I was very sweeping. Some of them were okay, but most of them were just bored, underpaid, underqualified, and um, it, it was just a really horrible job. And and you felt really sorry for the kids who deserved better. There's one particular girl I remember, she used to turn up in her pyjamas every day because she had such huge tantrums at home about not wanting to come in. So her mum would just bring her in in her pyjamas. And being, the other thing as well about, I was always frightened of losing my job all the time, which looking back, I'm actually quite ashamed of myself because I could have risked it. I, I, I should have risked it. I, should, I was an adult and I should have said to one of these parents, she's screaming her eyes out at home because this is a horrible place. Stop bringing her in her pyjamas, find yeah. a different nursery. Um, and, and I do, I'm very conflicted by the fact that I never did actually do that. Maybe I was just there for too long and got too used to it. So with the swimming, the single most horrible moment in the swimming, but it's actually so horrible that I, that I can laugh about it, is um, there was a very independent two-year-old who was very like, and so we would take them to the toilet and they would keep the cubicle doors open of the toilet. But she insisted on having the cubicle doors shut because she was a big girl. And that's, yeah, fine, but just don't lock it, fine. And then I heard this clanging inside the cubicle and I was going what's the clanging darling and she was like I found a present and I went watch that there's a box of presents I'm trying to get the present and this is clanging I was going I can't work out what the box of presents is and I pushed open the door she had her arm down to her elbow in the sanitary towel box oh Um, god no so because she'd seen these little wrapped up bundles in a box that she'd obviously had no idea what this box was um and it was (laughs) my job just because it's nobody else's job to to pull her arm out and wash it and wash myself and that's one of those things that there is no guidance on that there is no document in the nursery office of whose job it is to deal with that situation also I was the only person there who was swimming Uh, and and that was one thing that just happened a lot was you would get these guidances so like with nappy changing they would say that um, with nappy changing, you couldn't take a child to have their nappy changed. You had to ask the child to come with you. But most children just say no. Yeah, so, of course. So you'd have this document that had come from some office somewhere saying you can't you can't take the children by the hand and you can't tell them they need their nappy change. You must ask. But then you would just be standing there for ages with and, and there'd be like 20 babies in the baby room and you had to get their nappy changed. <laughs> as quickly as possible I was known for being incredibly slow at nappies because I was kind of quite is this all right are you all right with this are you comfortable is it all right if I wipe you but when you've got 20 children if you take five minutes to change their nappy that's five times 20 yeah um and the other teachers would get really annoyed with me when I was in the baby room for that so they used to literally just whip them like boom 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 and uh but you had to and the worst thing about working in a nursery that a lot of people don't realize is you're just you're just amongst substances all the time there is no period <laughs> of the day where you are not messy with some kind of yuck 
So it's always yeah. really hot. It's very hot. You have to, with the younger children, you're changing nappies. With the slightly older children, you're toileting them. Um, and then, so once nappies is done, there is milk and snack time, which is very messy. And they get the milk everywhere. And then once that do- that's done, then there's Play-Doh and paint. And then once that is done, then there's taking them out into the garden. And then you have to clean their hands and their shoes. And then once that's done, it's nappy time again. It's lunchtime. And there is never a point in the day where you're not involved with either poo, snot, wee, spit. That, that those, those, The snot and the spit are constant. And then yeah. the rest of the day is just various stages of mush, possibly poo, possibly mud, possibly paint, possibly food. And so it's quite weird when you're a nursery nurse that people think you have quite a twee, sweet job. And it is, it is one of the least sweet Mary Poppins type jobs you could imagine. It's more yeah. like working in the sewage works. <laughs> oh God! How quickly do you become uh, desensitized to the um, the excretions, the substances? Um, I never got desensitized to the excretions. Uh, I was only there once wow. a week. Some other, some other people might have done. It was my temp job. Um, yeah. I guess the teachers that did it really quickly. But one thing that was rather horrible as well was that the children who did the biggest and smelliest excretions would be the least popular children with the teachers. So well, I say yeah. teachers with the, with, the, with the staff. So if your child happened to be large and heavy and a vegetarian, that child would actually get less attention and less love than the smaller, Aww. smaller, neater eating children. Because there were some kids, they'd do a poo and there would be an argument amongst the staff as to who was going to change them because we knew it would yeah. be huge. But and then it's you're also, only yeah. human. Yeah, and also like like I wasn't qualified at all. But even the staff that were there that were that were full time were barely qualified. And it's a very sad state of affairs. I don't know about schools now, but certainly in my day, the girls that did child development at college were the girls who hadn't achieved anything else, and that was the last thing left. Which is awful because this is the start of our children's lives. Like we take them to nursery. And they're put with people who've never been given any kind of... Um, they're not there because they've had a drive. A yeah. lot of the people that worked there were literally there because there was nowhere else they could work. They weren't yeah. clever enough to work anywhere else. And they were looking after delicate children. I had a big argument with somebody because I don't eat wheat. There was a little boy in one of the rooms who wasn't meant to eat wheat. I'm not sure how allergic he was. I had a huge argument with one of the staff there that spaghetti hoops weren't vegetables. And she was giving him spaghetti hoops. And I was like, that's wheat. And she was saying, no, they're not. They're vegetables. Like, this is the educational level we're talking about, which, yeah. which sounds oh. really damning. And I'm certain there are nurseries. You know, I've, I've, had, I've got two kids myself and they both went to nursery. And one of them was awful. And we kept her there way too long because it was nearby. But I was really, really stringent looking at them because a lot of them, well, I don't know about a lot of them. The one I worked at was definitely just, it was full of people who just had nowhere else to go, no other job they could do. It's such a shame that um, the caring professions, like, you know, you know, you're saying the um, the start of a person's life. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so poorly paid and it, mm. it is, a, it's a very big and important job. And it just seems strange to me that it's not, um prioritized more and treated with the sort of respect that it deserves yes you know what I mean it, it was treated with no respect at all even by the, the owners we used to have this joke that if somebody just turned up at the door 
they'd stick a tabard on them and put them in one of the baby rooms because there were so few yeah. checks. And then one day that actually came true. One day we were introduced to this temp. She's here. She's covering somebody. She sat down. She was there for a good hour before we started sing song time. And she didn't know any of the hand movements to any of the songs, which was a bit of a red light to us <laughs> as yeah. a rookie. And we said, do you not know any of the songs? And she said, I came for an interview. I was here for an interview for some office work. And they literally hadn't asked her who she was, why she was there. They just saw an adult at the door, put a tabard on her and put her in one of the rooms. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, How awkward must that have been for her? Like, yeah. At what point yeah. do you say, I actually don't work here? Yeah, she, it was, she was there for a good hour before we asked her oh. why she didn't know how to do anything. Yeah. So Poor thing. I can't say that every nursery's like that, but I think worryingly a lot of them are. Because they are oh, they are no. short staffed, badly paid, sweaty, smelly, nasty jobs. Yeah. Well. Have you got any other jobs <laughs> on your list? Yes. Uh so um so the other job I was gonna put well I put this down as well because it was I think it's quite unusual um for people that you've been interviewing. But um my first job as a breakfast presenter on the radio oh, cool. was oddly horrible. Um in a way that I think people don't realise. Um, so I was the co-host of a breakfast show in... It was in Hampshire, I think. See, I've blocked it out. Um, <laughs> and so I was up at four o'clock in the morning. We did the show from six till nine. Uh, between nine and ten was the retro hour. I didn't have to do that. So that was when I would do a lot of the um, replying to people. So in independent radio... Uh, especially small-scale local independent radio, the people you hear on air are the people who are also sending you your prize when you win a CD and replying to the emails. Like, there's not a huge team of staff. Um, and I yeah. was on £50 a day. Wow. So, yeah. So I was, you know, you listen to a breakfast show, I was the other person, the other voice, and I was on £50 a day. That's not a lot at all. No, it wasn't. And it's weird looking back as well, because I had an agent, so she should have said something at some point. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, so I would be there from four o'clock in the morning till usually about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so that is 10 hours. Uh, they didn't have, we were in an industrial estate, so there was nowhere to get any food. Um, oh, so no. I would subsist on chocolate bars from the vending machine. Um, until I was allowed to go home at two but also because I was being paid so little uh home was this teeny weeny tiny bed sit like one I say one room there was a toilet in a different room but everything else was just one room and because I I lived this life where I was up at 4 a.m and then in bed at 6 p.m I had no friends but nor did I have any opportunity to make any friends yeah um so it, it was just miserable it just felt like well no torture's too heavy a <laughs> But but yeah, I was just sort of locked in this space. I was locked in this dark room for hours and hours, being asked to be perky and funny and knowledgeable. I was constantly being brought into meetings to be told I couldn't get the traffic right. And to this oh. day, I do not know how you can get a traffic report wrong. I still no, to this I day. imagine you're just reading it, right? Yeah, but they kept going, the traffic's still not right, still not cutting through. The M3 has uh, the M3 has tailbacks for three miles, so please do avoid that area. No, no, it's not cutting through. It's not cutting through the way you do. And I never, I still to this day do not understand how I could have done the traffic announcements differently. No, because people don't listen to the traffic announcements for a laugh, do they? I was told that it was the most important thing about being on local radio. The traffic announcement? Yes. I mean, I can kind of get that. 
because it's the local news, isn't it? But I don't know. Yeah. And so the, the listeners didn't really like me because the guy who, um, so the guy who was the anchor of the show, uh, what they do, we had a new producer at the same time as me, is they get you to have disagreements about things to make yeah. it sound interesting. So he'll say, I can't even remember that show, but he'll say something like, you know, I like I like Jaffa cakes, they're my favourite biscuit. And it would be my job to say, well, you know, technically they're not a biscuit. And then we would have a little bit of a to and fro so that people would phone in. But the thing about this guy was he was so loved. He was so loved by people in the local area. If I said something to him like, it's not a biscuit, it's a cake, I would just get so much hate. They would just all be voting and go, leave him alone. Leave him alone, you stupid girl. Like that. And I was... I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't work out how to disagree with him in a less disagreeable way. <laughs> you should have just gone, like, listen, guys, <laughs> I am paid to disagree with this man. <laughs> and what I was, yeah. I paid to do air quotes. Yes. Well, that was the other thing as well, is that people presume, because you're in show business, that you're getting a huge wage. So we would go to events. Yeah. And um, I remember going to a charity banquet um, with lots of footballers where there was an auction and somebody on our table kept asking me why I wasn't bidding on any of the prizes and I had to just kind of keep going oh well I don't really like football stuff and then they go yeah but it's for charity and I was sitting next to my boss and I was like I couldn't say I'm only paid 50 pounds a day and most of that is going on rent to one yeah. room that smells of fish because nobody told me that when you have a bed sit you never ever cook fish no fish no bacon yeah but I did my first week and that was it for the rest of the nine months that I was there. My flat oh smelt of fish and bacon. <laughs> no matter how long you leave that window open. <laughs> no. And I couldn't leave the window because that was the other thing that happened as well was because was I was at home, I would quite often be naked. And after a few weeks, I realised that there was a man in the flat below me who was watching me from his balcony. So I, I didn't really open the window very often. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it is interesting, that, isn't it? Like, I always think um, people... I always wish that my comedy career was going as well as my housemates uh, mm. seem to think that it is. Mm. Because, like, when you break down, you know, like, how much you're getting paid, yes. if you were to have that per hour, be like, oh, my God, that's so much money. But you're like, yeah, but I have had to travel nine hours yes. <laughs> to do that ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't paid for writing it or developing it or anything. Yeah, and when you're on the radio, people think you're only working during those hours. So they think you're working from six till nine. And so every yeah. now and then people make, you know, you'd say you're tired and then you'd get a, a little text message from somebody going, you only do three hours work. But actually, yeah. there's so many meetings for the rest, endless meetings. And I was constantly being barracked on that wasn't funny enough. That wasn't chirpy enough. That wasn't friendly enough. That wasn't you didn't do the traffic right. You disagreed with him too much even though I was being told to. And uh, yeah. yeah, and just the listeners don't like you, Meryl. That was quite often. The listeners Aww. don't like you. But you're like, you don't, I, I don't know what to do about that. What do I do? Like, I'm yeah. just, oh, yeah. Do you think that um, the the sort of criticism uh, made it a bad job as well? Like the negativity? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because also, I think there's something psychological as when you're paid that little of knowing that you've almost admitted to them that you're not really worth anything. So when you're getting criticised, you don't feel able to go, actually, I think you'll find that that was a really good show. And also it was, yeah. my, it was my first radio job. Like I did a breakfast show a couple of years later where um, 
it's it's still got the horrible side of you know the hours are the same and the length of work is the same and the ridiculousness of what people complain about is the same but I was paid more so I was paid more I was able to get a room in a shared house with some nice people and I was stricter about my hours but also I was able to sit there and say actually I think you're wrong I think actually it was a good show that we did and I think you're wrong about what our listeners want if if I felt that way but when you when it's your first job you're being paid 50 quid you're living in a living in a bed sit you're eating chocolate bars and nothing else for 10 hours and you're yeah and you're working 10 hours a day and somebody says to you that wasn't really very good your mental state is that you go yeah you're right I know I'm not very good which means the yeah. next morning you're going to be even worse yeah, yeah. and it's a spiral then isn't yeah it? because also I but... had no friends so the only person I socialized with was the guy that I presented the show with and so that ended up getting yeah. a bit weird as well because we would take our personal issues on air Oh, no. Yeah, so... And another thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes it was really hard. And and if we fell yeah. out, we, we couldn't fall out. We couldn't, dis- we couldn't genuinely disagree with each other and genuinely be annoyed with each other because we had to be with friendly for three hours on air. Yeah, every day. So was that yeah. seven days a week? No, I, I didn't do... Yes, actually, I did do Saturdays. I forgot. So it was six days a week. Wow, um, that's... So yeah. 60 hours. Yeah, a week on oh, what's... that's illegal <laughs> isn't it yeah technically you're not contracted to work after the show so technically that's your own time but in reality they're saying you know come to this meeting come to this other meeting what are you doing for tomorrow's show what have you got planned have you pre-recorded any sketches have you written any spoof songs and then of course there's going to events so because you're the breakfast show people you're constantly expected to be at every opening of something, restaurant openings, showbiz things. On my second breakfast radio job, I remember there was one night where I had two hours sleep and then drove into the studio and had quite a bad accident. But it's because I had been told to go to a nightclub to interview Brian Capron, who was at the time he was a murderer in Coronation Street. And the nightclub PA didn't finish till 2.30 a.m. And I had to yeah. get this interview with him after that. And the show started at six. Yeah. If I'd have been clever, I would have slept until... But I was told to be at the nightclub at seven. So I thought that I was going to be interviewing him at seven. So if I'd have been clever... Oh such a long night. Exactly. If I'd known I couldn't interview until 3am, I would have slept until about two and then done my day that way round. So, yeah, it's it's a really stupidly odd job anyway. Um, But, yeah, being paid 50 quid wasn't great. No. So that's... um, Yeah, I mean... It's uh, demoralising, isn't it? Yeah. And I know with your podcast that, you know, how you introduce it is is the jobs you've done to get by. And I can't say that that was a job I did to get by. But one of the things about, well, I was going to say show business, but actually a lot of industries do this. There's so much emotional blackmail into how much you're prepared to do to make it. So if you want to be in show business... You have to do all of these things for free. I mean, one of the things yeah. I'm worried about with, with lockdown, which um, I know with this being a podcast, people people will listen to it for years to come. But at the moment we're locked down with so many people doing free stuff and so many people going, well, hey, I know none of you are earning money, so I'm just going to put this online for free and pay me what you want, is I think it's quite a dangerous precedent for when we come out of lockdown because we are already expected to do so much for free as it is. If we come out of this situation and 50% of the comedy clubs are closed and people are going, okay, well, who did the most live streaming? You guys can have the gigs. What have you been doing? Oh, I've been driving a truck. Well, that wasn't very showbiz. You've not kept your hand in. Maybe you're not funny anymore. 
we're already yeah. there's already such a divide so so yeah it might not have been a job that I did to get by financially but it was definitely one of those jobs where you think well I have to do this because I have to move forwards within show business yeah I think I completely agree with you there on the um you know doing stuff for free front I know that like even in other industries uh people are expect expected to provide uh things for free because oh it's for charity or whatever yeah, yeah. but then it's like well okay but just because you want something making you know like a painting done or a sign making or something because you're doing something for charity it doesn't mean that the business providing that service is a charity like that's someone who's got overheads yes. that needs to uh you know just cover costs of materials or whatever like just because you're doing something for charity which is a lovely thing doesn't mean that you know you should sacrifice your ability to eat and pay yeah rent. yeah yeah because then otherwise you'll be asking for the charity for the money back when you <laughs> when you're homeless and destitute so it it doesn't make yeah. any sense yeah i think that uh currently there's been a, a big uh problem with making i mean like making the nhs a charity it's yes. not is it yeah no and a lot of people who work for the nhs are quite angry about that yeah because we're all donating to the nhs every month yeah well, it's like, I, I remember when they went on strike and there being this kind of, they had to keep saying things like, it's not really about the money, it's about the dignity and it's not about the money, it's about it's about being able to feed myself enough so I could, you go, just say it's about the money, my God, you're saving lives, but we're still not allowed to say that. Whereas, you know... Yeah, 100% it's about yeah. the money. And you deserve that money. Whereas a film star it. would be able to say it, a footballer would be able to say it, but for some reason people in the NHS yeah. have to keep saying, well, it's not about the money, I don't do it for the money, I do it for the applause. <laughs> Yeah, I just do it for the love of uh, saving people, which, you know, in a f- in fairness, yes, but also you you need to be rewarded financially for yeah. it because, you know, you had to pay to study to be there. Yeah, so but it's, it's like, well, also it's like we're saying about the nursery as well, is that you, the reason I wanted to work at a nursery was I loved being with children. I thought they were funny and I wanted to have fun with the children. If the circumstances you're working in is that you're covered in snot and poo and saliva and you're getting paid five pounds an hour and 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 you're being disrespected and treated badly then you cease to be able to love those children so i should think it's the same in the nhs yeah you want to save lives but equally you're also covered in blood and snot and spit a lot of the time and you want to be able to have enough sleep and enough food to come into work and get your head around the fact that you can wash you can wash the blood and the spit off and there's a lovely person there who you're saving rather than just I don't, I don't want to go near that person they're disgusting which is how you feel when you're treated badly and I know that from being yeah. in the nursery of, of actually like they're having divides between the kids you like and the kids you don't like because the kids you like are the ones that are the cleaner ones the ones that aren't snotty and aren't farting and don't have huge nappies filled all the time and that's horrible yeah. and you hate yourself for that but, I mean, it's, it is what it is, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, I suppose on the flip side, um, what is the best job that you've done, or jobs? The best job I ever had was working at the Museum of the Moving Image. Um, oh, that sounds interesting. Yes. Back, God, when was it that it shut down? Probably, I always think things happened recently. I'm of the age where things think things happened recently, and then I go, oh, my God, it was 20 years ago. I'm so old. They must have <laughs> shut down about, God, yeah, well, my daughter's. 13 so it must have shut down about 20 years ago um so it was at the bfi the british film institute on the south bank it was a museum of uh, cinema history 
and they employed actors to be in character of the time for each period of cinema history. Um, oh, cool. I was the only, I did three contracts. So you play two different characters per contract, uh, do one one week and then the other the other week. I was the only person to work there who ever, play, who ever worked in all six areas. Most people had a favourite yeah. contract. And so they would always be Victorian. But I really wanted to discover it all. And it was just so much fun. Um, you'd be completely in character and, and greet people. And it was so much fun just being able to, well, saying being rude to people sounds mean, but because you're in character and they're coming into your parlour, you'd be like, do you mind? Could you wipe your feet? And being able to frighten people. We had a, a horror show section where you could just jump on people and... And uh, I was a 1920s Hollywood casting director. So you'd be, oh, my God, you're gorgeous. You look amazing. And do all of this stuff and, and really mm. mess about with people in such a liberating way. And some, some of the actors who didn't like it there wouldn't stay in character because they felt a bit humiliated by it. But for me, it was always the liberty of it, of, of being in character. You could say anything. And often, especially when I was in the Victorian section, it was the first section you came into. So teenagers who didn't want to be there, be made to be there by school. Yeah. And they'd look at me and go, oh, my God, you look so stupid. Why are you wearing those shoes? And I, I used to wear these black leather boots, which at the time, almost every teenage group that came in and went, oh, my God, you're wearing fuck me boots. Why are you wearing fuck me boots? Why are you wearing fuck me boots? <laughs> like just constantly. Um, and so, of course, I would pretend not to know what the word meant. I was a very naive little posh girl who had all this cinema. I have all this lovely <laughs> cinema equipment in my house. But I, but I would explain to them, I'd say, well, you're wearing white cloth shoes because they were wearing trainers. And there is two inches of excrement on London city streets, which is why I wear high heeled leather boots. <laughs> and you will get a lot of excrement in your shoes, young lady. And I would end up talking to the teenagers quite often just about what I was wearing because they didn't really want to talk about the old cameras and who John Eastman was and who invented cinema. And so that for me was the liberation that I could literally take it in any direction I wanted to, because I was completely in character. Um, and, and I also, I'm one of those people, I have huge amounts of completely useless knowledge in my head. Yeah. <laughs> so I could just churn that out endlessly, which was fantastic. Now my children get it's it very all. useful. Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't use it's not useful knowing that Shirley Temple's birthday, um, 23rd of April, which is Shakespeare's birthday, is also Shirley Temple's birthday and also Tyrone Powers' uh, wedding anniversary because Tyrone Power was a heartthrob and he was told he wasn't allowed to get married. And he was desperately in love and wanted to get married. So the only way he could get married was to wait for everybody at the studio to stop watching him because the publicist would follow him all the time. So Shirley Temple's birthday, the entire studio celebrated, and he ran away to get married. Oh, that's yeah. adorable. Yeah, and I bore my kids, we'll watch The Wizard of Oz, and I'll be saying, oh, yeah, no, that's the second actor that played the Tin Man, because the first actor, they put aluminium on his face, and he got blood poisoning and had to go to hospital. So, Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just loads and loads of useless information. Which, But it's good to have that to draw upon when you are doing a job such as... Uh, that one yeah right well no I got it for that one because we were we had to you you had to show a certain interest in cinema anyway but then you had to be yeah. so knowledgeable people couldn't catch you out so you had to read tons and tons and tons of stuff right and it would get really so, awkward at times so um we'd say to people because it's a museum you get tourist groups in and people would come in from Israel and uh we were told historically because 
the museum finished in 1950 that we would say, well, there's no such place, sir. Don't you mean Palestine? And then they'd punch us in the face and it would get awkward. So we used to have in the uh, in the 1940s area, because it was meant to be just after the end of the war, we had a Hiroshima display. <laughs> and, and like right. we'd get Japanese tourists in and we'd think, God, this must just be awful. Why, why have we got a Hiroshima display in a museum of cinema? Like they'd think they'd be safe. So we'd all go and stand in front of it. And that was nice. So we would be um, in the 1940s section. You'd be a, an usherette in the Odeon. So that was all fun. And like, so we'd go and stand in front of nothing to see over here. And we'd do it all in character. And that would be, it'd just be loads of fun. So was it like, did you have a script that, or was it all just improv? It was, was improv. It, it was improv. We were given certain topics to talk about. Um, we were meant to do shows, which I hated doing, which is really odd with it being my favourite ever job. So when I was, sorry, I'm snotty, I have to wipe my nose. But luckily, because we're not in the same room, I don't have to wash my hands. Um, no. So in the Victorian section, we were meant to do a magic lantern show, which is what they used to do to amuse themselves. So you had um, this light that looks very like a cinema camera. Uh, cinema projector I mean and you had glass slides that you would put in you would tell a story that went with them and I hated doing that I just found it so dreary and for some reason I couldn't make it entertaining um we used to so that was relatively scripted but we were meant to write our own script for that um and it feels bad as a comedian I should be saying yes I wrote the best most entertaining script ever but I just couldn't write those stories I've even as a comedian I've always found it very difficult to make things up so my yeah. my material is always very anecdotal and I write jokes for television and I write for, like I write for New World Order, none of which is made up. Um, yeah. So I find it quite odd when people call me a creative because actually what I, what I do for a living is I take real life situations and turn them into one-liners. So yeah. yeah, they would ask me to do things like in the Hollywood section, we were meant to do mass auditions and teach everybody a tap dance and then switch the films, the camera on and say shine do your audition but I used to find anything scripted really dreary I used to really love just talking one-on-one with people and I, and yeah, I liked catching not... out the teenagers <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry I interrupted but, you what are you gonna say well, I was gonna say you're keeping it in the room aren't you it's like you know when you go to watch uh, a comedian and you can tell that they're just very good jokes but just jokes that are being like mm. said you can, you know you can see it whereas if someone's like oh you look a dick in that hat. Oh, <laughs> what's this backdrop, eh, guys? Anyway, yeah. like it, it just it makes you feel more. Even if it is the same joke that you use, like I have a joke that I use whenever there's a brick wall in the room, you know. But if people feel like you've just got that, yeah. Like, oh my god, that's it's, just for yeah. us. And I, I guess that is the kind of stand-up I am as well. So yeah, you've just managed to tie that all together in my head. That that I yeah. I liked emceeing the room when I worked at Momi. I mean, one of my favourite yeah. things I remember was um, with the bored teenagers when I was in the Hollywood section. And so there's this big film set with lights. And uh, this guy, came, this teenage boy came up to me and went, I said, do you want to make a film? You're in Hollywood now. Do you want to make a film? And he went, yeah, I'll make a porn film, thinking that I would be terribly shocked and report him to my... <laughs> so I went, okay. And I switched all the lights and went, right, can you get it hard? How quick can you get it hard? We're on a timer here. <laughs> up, up it comes. And he was terrified. And I just really enjoyed that. But also the thing is, because he that made him laugh and it shocked him, it then made him sit back and listen. It made him respect me as well. It's like the girls who would say to me, why are you wearing fuck me boots? And I would reply to them 
rather than be horrified and shocked. They actually liked me better because they thought, oh, she's yeah. okay. She, she's, she's not some fusty old actress, even though she's wearing a Victorian outfit. She actually understands what, what we <laughs> she understands our lives. And I would tell them about the teenage lives then, you know, teenage yeah. lives in Victorian times and stuff. Yeah, because I suppose as a teenager, you think that, like, uh, the world doesn't understand me. No one's ever been through this before. And you're like, everybody at every stage of history has been through that before. The period Um, I was acting in, which was um, 1895. Now, I'm going to get this wrong now and people will write in. But I I was reading a lot about Victorian (laughs) feminism at the time. It was either just recently had changed or was current that you could buy a five-year-old for sex. Like... It was, oh my god! It was um, a woman called Annie Besant, who's South London. It's, it, my, my daughter's school has an Annie Besant house, which I really like. She was a vic- the Victorian campaigner that brought in the age of consent, and it's interesting now that a lot of people look upon the age of consent as being a restrictive thing, of being I can't have sex with someone until they're sixteen, and that's not fair because I'm fifteen and I want to have sex. It's actually put in place a protective thing because before the age of consent. You could just say, like, a brothel could have a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old. Um, so, yeah, it was a really difficult time to be a, to be a woman. Um, yeah. You know, even with my corset, we, we would wear real corsets in the museum, which were very difficult to breathe in. Um, we'd get very faint yeah. sometimes. Um, but I would talk to the, the girls sometimes about the amount of... One of the reasons there were so many freak shows in the Victorian times was the huge amount of birth defects because women would wear their corsets while they were pregnant. Oh, my God. And uh, we had a tradition at Momi that at the end of your contract, when you left, you would kill your character. And my Victorian yeah. character, I decided, killed of a, uh, died of a vaginal prolapse after birth because they were very common. <laughs> you would give birth and then yeah. a, a couple of weeks later, you'd put your corset on again, pull it too tight and everything would just be squeezed out the bottom and you'd die. Oh, my God. What an awful thing to happen. Yeah. But I suppose when you think, like, just uh, how restrictive clothing must have made such a big um, difference to your ability to live, yeah. you know, like, equality can't be achieved if you can't breathe properly and move well, yes. can it? and women would faint all the time. And, uh, well, I was watching, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but it's films again, uh, Carry On Girls, um, there's a bit in Carry On Girls where there's a male public toilet being opened and June Whitfield, who's playing this feminist uh, leader, is protesting as to why there aren't any female public toilets. And I didn't realise that that was actually a very topical issue. And that's the late 60s, that there was still a big yeah. issue that there weren't public toilets for women because women weren't expected to be out of the house long enough to need to use a public toilet. But when wow. you're in a course, the other, the other thing about being in a corset, you need to go to the toilet all the time. Um, yeah. So we would find it quite, I think it's another reason I found it difficult to perform is that we would be performing in corsets. And sometimes yeah. we would complain because um, the men who worked in the Victorian, was it? No, there was an Edwardian section which was set in World War One. So the men that would work there would be given World War One uniforms, but they weren't, they weren't made of hessian. They weren't itchy. And we were like, well, yeah. why are we having to wear a corset? if they're not wearing the unbearable clothes that the men wore at the time. Yeah, because I suppose you can get something that looks near enough to a corset, but isn't, Yeah, that would be comfortable. But I, d- I adored wearing the corset, though. It made me feel very, then feel very sexy. We've got quite a lot of photographs yeah. of me in my underwear getting ready, because I would say to my friends, take a photo <laughs> of me in my underwear, it looks so sexy. 
yeah and also we had it I mean I think mine took me down to something like a 24 inch waist whereas at the time women were having 16 17 18 inch waists so we wore a corset but we didn't wear a Victorian Jesus. corset yeah. yeah oh my god that's mad Pro, uh, post-birth prolapse was the most common form of death I think during that period oh that's heartbreaking because it's so avoidable yeah yeah and uh yeah. so there were a lot, I mean I suppose the things it has left me were my daughter when my children are doing like World War 1 because we had a section in World War 1 so I learned a lot about World War 1 which wasn't really talked about back 20 years ago really mm-hmm. um and about the propaganda and about um how many men who stayed behind would get tuberculosis from operating the film cameras and stuff really? like that yeah because they they were operated with various gases like the light was something that was lit to be they didn't have electricity inside them i'm trying to remember it all off the top of my head now from 20 years ago but (laughs) it was it was fascinating it was a fascinating it was a fascinating job that's great and it is um it's nice to have uh i i did one once where i had to pretend to be a spy (laughs) and at first i was shitting myself like having to deal with like the public but there's something so liberating when you realize that there's so much that you can say because you're playing a character yeah. that you can get away with. And yes. You can be so insulting and honest yeah. ab- about people and to people and they just take it. Yeah. And <laughs> Especially when you're a Hollywood a... casting director. I'd be like, you're, yeah. too, you're too ugly. Get out of my room. <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> and they're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I suppose I am. <laughs> I went through a phase. We had um, an agate prop train, which was the uh, propaganda trains from Soviet Russia. Uh, that they right. used to send because Russia was so big, so they would send trains to the village to kind of say, "We've had a revolution. This is what we're doing now." <laughs> oh, by the way, um, guys. yeah, because there was no way of getting news from one part of Russia to the other. So they'd be like, yeah, "Yeah, we've had a revolution. So your farm belongs to you now. Well done." Um, and I went through a phase because sometimes you would really push yourself to see how far you could go with the public. And I started confiscating people's cameras. Yeah. So they would get onto the train and I would right. I must have all of your uh, equipment, please. And I would I would have this little pile of cameras next to me. <laughs> and, and I used to when I was a 1920s casting director, I used to make guys take their tops off. And, and looking back, it was actually quite I think somebody should have stopped me because I used to literally like. <laughs> have rows of teenage guys with no tops on looking at them <laughs> well i mean if someone really had an issue with it they would have complained i know they didn't i know but it feels the only time i got in trouble was when um uh, a teenage boy came in wearing headphones and i went to talk to him mm-hmm. so i took his headphones off his head and they they fell on the floor and broke and he was right. so furious that was the literally the only thing i got into trouble for the whole yeah. year and a half that i was there considering I used to make people take their clothes off I used to throw people out of my office for being too ugly I used to confiscate cameras (laughs) that's not bad going is it really (laughs) (laughs) I used to pretend pretend to be filming porn (laughs) with underage boys (laughs) yeah hopefully he wasn't that underage oh well that's okay then I was thinking like 14 or something I I let him keep his clothes on okay that's good then Well, talking history, um, uh, we'll end on this one. Mm -hmm. I I always forget to do this, but I think it's quite an interesting uh, section that I forget to do all the time. Um, Okay. But uh, I like to do a little bit about uh, terrible jobs from history. So we were discussing this one earlier, weren't we? Um, We could have been Tudor boy actors. Uh, We probably couldn't 
well, I don't know, maybe we could have been boys, who knows. Uh, but that, that was an awful job because it was the plague uh, and you're a child, so no one cared about you, you had no rights. Uh, and acting was considered morally dubious, uh, which I think is still true today. <laughs> um, but a preacher at St Paul said, uh, the cause of plagues is sin, if you look to it well, uh, and the cause of sin are plays, therefore the cause of plagues are plays. Um, right. Yeah, they just they thought that. Well, I suppose it's like all these people now that are saying that coronavirus has come about because of homosexuality, and then ended up getting it themselves. <laughs> and you're like, what a wonderful way of coming out. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, like you needed to. Um, well, if in fifteen thirty, if you were caught uh, performing without a license, you could be whipped, and if you were caught whipped? doing it again, yeah, you'd lose part wow. of your ears. Wow. Yeah, performing. harsh. Yeah. Do you know what? It um, is harsh, but I'm thinking of some open mic nights that could really do with that. Yeah, like, listen, mate, if you come back again, I'm going to yeah. cut your ears off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you keep running this really dodgy bringer and being really crappy <laughs> to all your acts, we're going to cut yeah. your ears off. No, you're not being edgy. That wasn't you being edgy. You're just not funny. And we're going to whip you to prove it. Yeah, exactly. talk to me about being edgy. You're being whipped now. Now you're edgy. Yeah. <laughs> is that edgy enough? <laughs> but um as well in an act of 1572 said that all common players not belonging to any baron of this realm or to any other person of greater degree shall be judged and deemed rogues vagabonds and sturdy beggars okay you, you had to have a patron yes. paying for you otherwise yes. you were just nothing i guess though i did say to you when we were talking about it before that i wonder what the girls of the same class were doing during that time. Because they, yeah. if they weren't allowed to be in the plays, where were they? Yeah, and also I, anywhere better. I guess so, but being a boy actor, was it something you were indentured? I mean, I don't think you were made to do it. It wasn't like being put up a chimney, was it? Or was it... No, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I don't know how much choice those children had about anything. Really. I guess. I don't know how much was... money it made. Like, would you get more money being up a chimney? Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard, the actors, they just got, like, it was just expenses that they made. So I suppose they got fed and had a place to sleep. Yeah. And that was it. There was no, they weren't squirrelling away any uh, savings. Pretty much uh, like now, just, really. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so little has changed <laughs> in 500 years. But as well, like, um, some of the bad things that were listed here were oh, because, yes. obviously, girls were allowed on stage yeah they, they would get the boys to play the women um so like they would the stage makeup was made from lead so the skin would fall off mm-hmm. um and they um well it says poor, perfor- poor performance meant that you got abuse and stuff thrown at you which again is very much like modern <laughs> day <laughs> uh, but then the costumes were just pinned together yeah so it would hurt, but then that was the case for women just all the time, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. So the women would be wearing the lead makeup all the time. I always find I find that even now. Like I was watching an interview with Steve Carell, and they were talking to him about the forty-year-old virgin where he waxes his chest, and they were yeah. saying to him, "How could you bear to go through that? How could you bear to go through that waxing?" And they were talking about how painful it was and what an awful scene it was, and how they they had to stop halfway through because it was too bad. And then I was like, 
every single woman you've interviewed like like wonder woman's in her pants that that's all been waxed yeah. you know that hasn't come off naturally they've all had to go through that waxing as well you've not asked them they haven't yeah, been able like, to say i don't want to do this scene anymore because it hurts too much yeah they just need to deal with it don't they i reckon yeah <laughs> and the clothing but, thing the clothing thing with the with the actors did you know that's where the term drag queens come from that's what i mentioned i mentioned that earlier oh, yeah. wasn't it so drag queens is because the clothes were pinned together because they were too big. So they would be queens and the clothes would drag along the floor. Yeah. There we go. It's another one of the useless fact. facts that I carry around no, in my brain. It's great. I love that. <laughs> well, they, they, were, um, they were real, real costumes, weren't they? It wasn't like yeah. someone had put them, They weren't diamantes. Were no, the, the, the patrons, if the patrons were noble women, they would hand, they would give them their secondhand clothes. They would donate it. But I remember... Uh, Quite soon after finding that, my son went through a phase of wearing princess dresses and I put on Twitter one day that my son was in drag and somebody told me off for saying that he was in drag and saying, no, he's not, he's just wearing clothes. I was going, well, actually, actually, what drag means (laughs) is that he's in a second-hand queen outfit that's too big for him. So I think you'll find... (laughs) That's exactly what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) The only time all this information I've got isn't useless is when I'm in arguments. (laughs) <laughs> on Twitter and you don't have to pause to Google it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, actually. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, thank God that we just don't have to wear lead on our faces. No. Uh, to get abuse held at us. <laughs> these days. <laughs> we are still working for expenses, though. Yes. And we are still, you know, well, with lockdown showed how li- how little importance we have to society. You yeah, know? and people have been very vocal about it. They've been saying, oh, we don't need uh, performers. Uh, and I think that it's incredible that the people who are saying that have managed to get by without watching any television, yeah. listening to any music, uh, no Netflix subscription. Uh, yeah. It's incredible. And my, I take my hat off to those people. Truly, I do. <laughs> it was weird because one of my neighbours, I said to my neighbour that I'd lost all my work. And then it wasn't until a few days later she said to me, do you mean you've lost all your income as well? And I was like, what? What, what did you not understand? It was the same thing. But she has, she thought that because I write for television programmes that I would continue. It's weird because I write for New World Order, which isn't even repeated. But she kind yeah. of had this thing that if somebody watched it on iPlayer, I would get a hundred quid or something. You're like, mate, I know, you, you know, yeah, but... I don't know whether other people at work are going to get royalties, but certainly somebody that's written one joke that was in one episode. <laughs> Even if I did get royalties, <laughs> it would be like a penny or something. But no, yeah, no, no royalties, no repeat fees. My best friend, one of my best friends, was in the uh, Portal advert. You know, the advert where somebody buys his mum... Oh, no, she, the girl buys her mum this sort of webcam thing that she keeps in the kitchen. Um, yeah. And she was pretty much living off that, and then they've replaced it with a lockdown version, which is exactly the same. It's just not been made properly. It's been made by yeah. somebody in the house. So she now isn't getting the repeat fees for oh, advertising God. something which the sales are through the roof because it's perfect for lockdown. But because all the adverts yeah. have now become lockdown adverts. Ah, that's gutting, isn't it, that? Yeah. Oh, no. She can't get a I repeat just... fees because all the adverts have to look like they've been made on someone's phone now for some weird yeah. reason. Yeah, I don't get that. I, I think it's disgusting that uh, so many companies have managed to uh, use, you know, this clap for carers to yeah. sell chips. Virgin. Virgin are using clap for carers. 
So Virgin, Virgin who sued the NHS, <laughs> Virgin who sued the NHS, have clapped for carers in their advert for their mobile broadband or whatever. So absolutely yeah. disgusting, isn't it? But also, I can't tell. I keep saying on Facebook, I can't tell the difference between any of these adverts anymore. They all look exactly the yeah. same. They're all just clips of people painting rainbows, and then at the end, it might say "mobile chips aftershave." Like I have yeah. no idea what any of them are trying to sell me. No, it shows the world. Oh, yeah. show us a beach or something. Show us something that I can't see out of my window. Yeah, so yeah. and the amount of people that seem to think it's wonderful being furloughed. And it's like, oh my god, what? You lost everything. Oh, you lucky bastard. <laughs> like, yeah. <I> sh- <laughs> oh, anyway, uh, I think that's our time. There. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Oh, well, it's yeah. it's lockdown. I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And I did but, my solo um, show and I haven't, I meant to do another one. So I should just plug me in general, I suppose. So my name is Meryl O'Rourke, which is really difficult to spell because I didn't change it. Um, but you, you've got your dodgy Catherine spelling, haven't you? I bet loads of people can't find that. So yeah. um, on socials at M-E-R-Y-L-O-R-O-U-R-K-E. And then if anything comes up, I will tell you about it. I'm not on Instagram because it scares me. But I'm everywhere else. Um, yeah. <laughs> Twitter and Facebook's enough, isn't yes, it? I've had enough terrible, awful experiences on Twitter and Facebook to not want another social media platform, which I've been told is even worse. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I don't need more people's people's bills to access my details and call me a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So. Well, thank you for being on. That's uh, all right. It's been a pleasure. I hope I've said yeah. things that have been vaguely interesting. <laughs> It's so weird. You have. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Catherine.